Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to Sister Wives with Mary Jane Kay. Today, I'll be giving my commentary on episode two of Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment on your thoughts to my YouTube listeners. Let's get into this episode. For those interested in watching this docuseries, it's available on Netflix, of course. The episode opens with a flashback to September 2002. One of Rulon Jeff's wives, Rebecca, says her husband she was sealed to for time and all eternity was dead. She was sad Rulon had died, but also relieved she wouldn't have to be violated anymore. She was scared of what would happen to all of Rulon's younger wives. But soon after Warren became the prophet, he called all the wives together and said last night, Seven of the wives married him, and he asked for those seven former wives of Rulon, his father, that he married the previous night, to stand up. Seven of Rebecca's sister wives stood up, and Warren announced that this was the next step for all of them. Over the next couple of weeks, every morning you would see Warren walk in with more sister wives following behind him like ducks in a row, smiling because the previous night they married Warren. Warren even started marrying some of his own mothers after Rulon passed. Lots of people had a problem with it because Warren was marrying his moms. They had a meeting and Warren was there with his father's wives, who are now his wives. And he announced, look at what the Lord has blessed me with. It gave Charlene Jeffs chill. So she went to her husband about it, saying something is wrong here. And her husband told her nothing the prophet does is wrong. There is a creepy scene of school-aged little girls in prairie dresses with the plague-braided hair singing a song about Uncle Warren's soldiers marching us to war. It gave me chills, honestly. It's creepy AF. Isaac Weiler, a former FLDS member, says when Warren took control, 99% of the people were going along with him. There were very few people that weren't behind Warren. Everyone was focused on Warren's word, and you can hear Warren's word. His creepy, evil voice saying in the background, whatever the Lord commands through his prophet is right, even if it seems wrong to our traditions. Again, it's brainwashing like the dictators do in North Korea, like with the state-run television and the propaganda campaigns. This is the same thing, reminding followers in Warren's echo chamber, whatever God commands is done through the prophet, Warren, and it is right. Basically, Warren is connected to God who commands him. And so Warren, the prophet, is never wrong as the extension of God on earth communicating with him. He is warning people the things he will be doing won't jive with tradition. In fact, it may even seem wrong. But what seems wrong and different is actually right. So Warren is conditioning people to ignore what feels wrong, assuring them it may seem different to the norm, you may hesitate, you may doubt, but it's right. It's conditioning the community, basically. Elisa Wall says they believed Warren was God on earth and his words were of God. Fear drove the compliance, the fear of getting left out, the fear of not being good enough, and the fear of being the one lone person who took a different course than everybody else, says Dwayne Barlow, former FLDS member. Dwayne says... Fear was a great driving force for the Warren Jeffs agenda, and after Warren became the prophet at the end of 2002, 
it was the start of everyone becoming aware that there were some things coming down. Things started changing. Things got stricter and increasingly more straight-laced and boring. Warren's motto was hard work for the privilege of working harder. Fun became a sin word to quit using. There was no more zoo. There were no more plays. Videos weren't allowed anymore. Guns were no longer allowed. All of the guns had to be turned in. Charlene Jeffs says a lot of the laws and rules were directed towards the women. Before, women were allowed to dress any way they wanted to dress, provided they were covered and modest. Then, Warren restricted the clothing and what you wore. The women were told to get rid of denim, then they had to get rid of prints. Everyone had to look alike, and the color red was forbidden. This, in my opinion, is basically trying to remove any shred of individuality or uniqueness or expression among the women, because the more you strip a person's identity and only give them the echo chamber and the groupthink, the easier it is to control the people and to manipulate their minds. Erna was shocked by the no red rule. Warren just got up one day and he told everyone to be done wearing red. Then he required the long underwear for everyone. Hair took hours, but Warren required the plig braids. The hair on the women had to be immaculate and it had to fit the specific protocols. The women had to learn French braids and all types of plating and Warren decided everything. And the women went along because they thought it was for their salvation. Warren even had instructional videos made for how the women had to do their braids and how they had to do their hair. One woman said she didn't fear death. She feared disobeying the prophet. Erna would have rather died than disobey Warren. Her husband says she believed that by obeying Warren, she would have life eternal, even if she died in the process. A private investigator, Sam Brewer, first started looking into the FLDS when he was a bounty hunter and a PI. He worked criminal civil cases, and at the time, he didn't know much about the FLDS. But around 2004, he perused the newspaper, and it caught Sam's attention that Warren was kicking young boys out of the FLDS, leaving them homeless. These boys were trying to survive on the streets. Boys aged 13 and up were expelled from communities by Warren. Dan Fisher, a former FLDS, did a press conference about it. Imagine being 13, born into a cult, indoctrinated in it, and then one day, the prophet says all the boys, 13 and up, are no longer a part of the community. They must leave. Imagine the pain for the parents, and imagine these kids who have no education and no skills, who have been raised to fear the outside world as pure evil, who have no social or life skills, being thrown to the wolves with no clothes or food or money or shelter. How the fuck do you survive? What do you do? You know no one and you don't know anything about the world. How do you feel? Where do you go? How do you cope? This is horrific. When all the young girls are married off to older men, you have a surplus of boys that had to be expelled. The PI couldn't believe that one man, one so-called prophet, would have all this power, so he started digging into it. He shows us where Warren's house was, and it has a huge brick chimney, and on the chimney it says, pray and obey. The PI says Short Creek was the most lawless town in America. 
The whole city was run by the FLDS. They had their own fire department. They had their own search and rescue. And all the police were picked and approved and appointed by Warren Jeffs. And they would do exactly what they were told to do. Warren's power came from the fact that he controlled all of the property in Short Creek. Nobody in the community owned their own homes. All the homes were owned by the church, so Warren could kick people out of their homes and move others into them. He could do anything he wanted, and he did. Lloyd Wall says he and Warren never saw eye to eye. Lloyd disliked how Warren abused his position. Lloyd didn't believe God was leading Warren, so he bit his tongue and he held back. Elisa thinks, looking back, that because her dad had an education outside of the FLDS and he had more life experience than Warren, he was quite a threat to Warren. Warren said Lloyd was a loose cannon that they couldn't control, so they had to do something with Lloyd, and that was the start of his family being torn apart. Elisa says Lloyd, her father, was used as an example. He was stripped of his status in the church and he was stripped of his family. Rebecca says her mom and siblings who were still at home were removed from her dad's home at the hands of Warren and they couldn't stop it. Elisa says one day herself, her siblings, and her mom were taken away and they were driven to Fred Jessup's home. Fred was the bishop of the community and very loyal to Warren. Fred had over 20 wives and Elisa's mom was told that she would marry Fred and become his wife. Elisa was 13 at the time, and when her mom was forced to marry Fred, she now became the child of Fred Jessup's. He became her father, and Elisa wasn't allowed to have any contact with her biological father, Lloyd, from that day forward. Lloyd did not know about this until it was all done that his family was now Fred's family and his world collapsed. Myrna, his first wife, stood by Lloyd. Elisa's dad was demoted to a status worse than dirt in the community and he was treated as such. He still held on to the convictions of his faith. He still believed in the FLDS doctrine. So Lloyd was trying to do all he could to get into the good grace of the priesthood. Lloyd is a bright man. He designed bullets, a camper stove. He even had a very successful business called Hydropack. It was an engineering firm that made parts even for the space shuttle. Because Lloyd was determined to stay in the church, he ended up losing his business to the church because they demanded that he turn his business over to them. Under Warren Jeffs, the FLDS took over businesses owned by its members, and they took all the profits generated by those businesses as well. Warren had a lot of money and enormous resources through all the companies the church controlled. They had huge agricultural operations, manufacturing operations, construction, multi-level commercial buildings, and the customers for the FLDS businesses are known corporations, known names like Walmart and Amazon. What gives the FLDS companies the edge is the fact that they have unlimited free labor through all the boys in the community. And if the boys were good workers, Warren kept them around as free labor. And so the church businesses bring in millions a month. The PI considers the FLDS the number one domestic human traffickers in the country. They have boys and girls transported on work crews throughout the U.S. Young girls were a commodity owned by the church. 
Ruby Jessup says when she was growing up, there was a lot of people that saw her as a troublesome child because she was more into boys than anything, and she enjoyed flaunting what she had. Ruby is getting a tattoo, and she never got one when she was still in. She says they make you live in fear all of the time. When she was 12 or 13, she had a big, big crush on Joe, and they would make eyes at each other in church, and that wasn't allowed. Joe knew since first grade that talking to girls was a bad thing, and he was not supposed to talk to them. Warren said if they cloud the channels of revelation from God to the prophet, then he won't be able to tell you who you are supposed to marry when the time is right. And at some point, that kind of started making sense, but Joe still liked girls. He had a crush on Ruby, and it took him months of working up the courage, but he finally handed Ruby a note. One Sunday, she was walking, and Joe pulled up in a truck, and he handed her a letter asking her not to look at him during church because his dad found out and he was upset. He also wrote, I love you, call me Joe. They weren't allowed cell phones, but they had a landline. So Ruby would sneak the phone into her room and she and Joe started talking almost every night. Joe used to think he would hope God would forgive him because he really liked Ruby. Ruby's brother had a secret Walkman, and she had an ABBA CD, so she took it, and after school, she would hike a hill to sit in front of Joe's house, sitting there for hours, listening to naughty music, thinking about herself and Joe. Ruby heard of people asking for people's hands, and then they would marry, so she had hope, and that hope kept driving them. Joe prayed God would tell Warren that he and Ruby were supposed to be together, One day, Ruby was asked to go into Uncle Fred's office, and he said Warren called, and they mentioned Ruby and that she was to be married, but not to Joe, and she was just 14 years old at this time. There had historically been underage marriages in the FLDS, but they took off on steroids under Warren. The pattern seemed to be that with a girl that was a little bit independent, the idea was to get her married young and get her pregnant so she would be locked in and trapped. Rebecca says she will never forget when her mom called and said Elisa was getting married and Elisa was just 14 years old. So Rebecca wondered for what reason a 14-year-old girl would be told to marry her first cousin. Elisa had grown up knowing Alan and she disliked him. He was mean and rude to her her whole life. Alisa's skin would crawl when she was around Alan growing up, and she didn't feel safe in his presence. And because of her stubborn side, she did a few things that most FLDS girls don't do, like speaking against her impending marriage. Alisa was defiant and vocal, and she voiced that she cannot do it. She cannot marry him. Alisa had the opportunity to sit across from Warren, and she felt she was fighting for her life. She was crying and scared and intimidated to be sitting in Warren's presence. This is a 14-year-old child being forced to marry her first cousin she hated, not to mention the incest and that she is a minor. She also had to sit across from the devil himself to try and plead that she did not want this marriage. This is literally making me sick to hear. I feel like there is poison in my guts. This is so effing disgusting. Elisa says her fear and intimidation 
was compounded by Warren asking her if she was questioning his will or if she believed she knew better than him, the prophet. He was immovable. He ignored Elisa's pleas and requests. Ruby didn't know till a few days before her wedding who she was marrying. It was her second cousin, Haven. Ruby called Joe and she asked him if he would come get her so they could leave together and make a life together. He left to pick her up and Ruby started packing her stuff, but 10 minutes later, he called Ruby and he told her he couldn't do it, that his heart was with the priesthood and he had to remain there. Joe says it's easy to see now that all they had was life after the celestial kingdom. If you didn't get there, you were done, Joe says. He says each morning, Warren had a devotional morning class. It started in first grade when Joe was six, so starting at six years old, Joe was listening to this stuff every morning for an hour, being conditioned and indoctrinated in it. It was drilled into Joe that his eternal life was the most important thing. If you didn't obtain absolute salvation, you would die and your cells would disperse into nothing. Everyone wanted to be considered worthy of salvation, but Elisa didn't feel ready to get married. She was in her mom's room with her mom and sister going to be married the next day as they lovingly made her a handmade wedding dress. There was no joy. There was no excitement. There was just absolute devastation. Elisa says there were two other girls at the time getting married and one was Ruby and Ruby also didn't want to get married. So Elisa and Ruby bonded and became each other's crutch because they both didn't want to get married. Ruby remembers Elisa hanging on to her mom, crying, begging her mom, please, please don't make me do this. On the day of the ceremony, Elisa was told that she and Ruby needed to get in vehicles because it was time. Ruby wasn't told where they were going, but it felt like they were driving forever. The FLDS know the law, so they would go to Caliente to do the weddings because it was on ground in Nevada where the law wouldn't be so extreme on the man for marrying underage girls. This is so perverted. Ruby and Elisa were told there would be no photographs or documentation, there would be no marriage license, and no proof that the marriage actually happened. They pulled up to the Caliente Hot Springs Motel and it felt ominous and it looked abandoned. Ruby tried putting on a brave face, but inside she was a scared little girl. Of course, imagine having to go through this at 14 and what that must feel like. Elisa says there was a moment when they were getting ready when Ruby suggested they could run. Ruby remembers telling Elisa there was a back door to run from and it's never too late. But they didn't dare. Elisa showed Ruby the tiara she was going to wear and Ruby was trying to make Elisa feel as beautiful as possible. This is excruciating to just watch and listen to. That both of these children were forced into this knowing they didn't want it feeling like they have no choice, like they aren't even human, like they are just objects. I literally feel physically sick, and normally I'm quick to talk about how I feel, but I feel sick. I feel heavy. This is truly disturbing to me on a deep level. If I feel my blood boiling and my heart beating and nausea in the pit of my stomach and anxiety in my guts as just a female viewer at 39 years old, imagine what these 14-year-old children felt on this day.
experiencing this. There aren't words for this type of evil and this type of trauma. All I'm going to say is I wish I had a fraction of the strength and resilience all of these women and men have who are strong enough to speak about what they endured. And I have a ton of respect and admiration for all of these people who are able to talk about what they went through because this is worse than horrific. The young women, these children forced to marry their cousins, are forced to engage in incest as well, which is evil in its purest form. And the boys being kicked out of their communities, the child labor, this is hell on earth happening right in the U.S. They brought Ruby and Elisa into the hotel room, and in the room was Warren, Alan's parents, and her mom. Elisa started to sob so much that her wedding dress was soaked in tears. Warren officiated the marriages. They play his creepy voice, the voice of the devil, saying, When you are sealed in this holy law, you give yourself unto God by giving yourself unto your husband. You cannot escape the responsibility, Warren says. Elisa says at the point where she was supposed to say, I do, she was so upset in tears, she could not say it. So Warren had Elisa's mother stand up next to Elisa and her mom squeezed her hand and Elisa felt her mom's desperation in that hand squeeze. And she realized it wasn't just about her. It was not only about her salvation, but it was also about her mother's salvation as well. So she said, okay. Warren in his devil voice says, the best marriage counseling is keep sweet no matter what. They went and they got Ruby, who was next, and she blanked out all Warren said. She says she felt like she left her body saying, I do. When she kissed her cousin, Haven, she pictured Joe. Mike Watkiss, a journalist, says the FLDS consumed a great deal of his career. He doesn't like bullies who pick on people who can't fight back. He says Warren Jeffs is a bully who got himself a big platform and used God to justify Mike says this was a sex crime story and he refused to ignore it. The PI says what Mike was doing is bringing attention to the FLDS and that was great. Mike knew to sustain a polygamous community on the industrial level, you have to have a Stalinistic social architecture in place to make it work. He says you need to have a flock of young women and that acts as a currency, the currency of the young bride. That's the monetary system and the mortar that holds it together. The man who can give the brides holds all the power because you don't go to heaven unless you get three wives and Warren is the only man who can give the wives to the man to get into heaven. Mike says it's an ironclad lock they have on these people's psyches and they can gussy it up with theology and God, but where the rubber meets the road, it's men controlling women and their sexuality. Rebecca says, Warren kept tabs on her and she didn't get away with anything. After Rulon died, he told Rebecca that she had to pray that God would reveal to him who she belongs to. Rebecca already saw what married life was like with Rulon Jeffs, and if it was already that horrible, she wondered what chance any other marriage would have. Elisa says Warren put a lot of pressure on Rebecca to get remarried, and that pressure was intense. In the community, Rebecca was an important person of influence, and Rebecca was used as an example of what a good priesthood woman should look like. 
That meant perfect obedience, and it became increasingly apparent that there was a plan put in place to break Rebecca into submitting to marrying someone of Warren's choice. Warren called Rebecca into his office. He gave her a week to be remarried. She begged him not to do this to her. He told her she knew this is what God wants, and she told him, no, she doesn't know that. So Warren pointed at her, and he told her he will break her, that she had too much freedom for too long, and he said he will train her to be a good wife. Rebecca felt the world caving in on her. She was scared, and she couldn't imagine a scenario that she could stomach. And at the same time, she believed that leaving the FLDS was sealing her damnation. Utah attorney Roger Hull says it's hard for people in mainstream society to understand. He says physically, somebody could figure out how to leave. But far more powerful than the physical restraints are the psychological restraints and the social and religious and mental restraints they have being born and raised in this group. They aren't independent financially, and they are taught that the outside world is evil. So people are afraid to leave, and they know if they leave, they are leaving their families. It's hard to do. Rebecca remembers thinking she could leave, and she would feel relief and then vacillate between leaving and staying. She wondered where she would go. She didn't know you could get help, like by calling a woman's shelter, for example. She had no idea that there were support and resources available to her. She called her brother who had been kicked out and he was living in Oregon and he told her to go to Oregon. He would help her get there. So Rebecca started making plans. The way the security worked on the property was that on Sunday mornings, there was the lightest security. So Sunday morning was the day. She wrote a letter to her mom and her sisters and she left it on the bed. She walked past her sister wives thinking it was the last time she would be in that place. She knew she was on camera, so she couldn't just bolt and run. Her heart was pounding in her head. She got to the gate. She shimmied up and down the gate, and she took off. Elisa says for Rebecca to decide to do the unthinkable as a woman of their culture, to walk away, to leave, was an act of great courage and survival on Rebecca's part. But for the women left behind, like her mother, herself, and her sisters, the woman close to Rebecca, it was painful. Elisa felt she lost her best friend. Rebecca thought about taking Elisa, but she didn't know how she was going to take care of herself. It was hard. Rebecca was working in a restaurant, figuring out how to make a new life in the outside world. It felt like being in a foreign land. The only things that remained the same for her were violin and her sewing machine. And Rebecca felt shame about that. She was 26 and she didn't know what to wear. She didn't know how to use makeup. She was clueless about the social references that people made, like about Saturday Night Live or Friends, the TV show. She felt like this constant dimwit and it was lonely. Rebecca says those she left behind in the FLDS were not allowed to talk to her. The term they give people who leave is an apostate. If you leave, you are an apostate. Rebecca missed her family, especially Elisa, and she knew Elisa was in a bad situation. She was helpless and stuck and able to do nothing to get herself out of it, and it haunted Rebecca thinking about Elisa and her predicament. Elisa was feeling desperate. Nothing had prepared her for what happens after marriage. Alan was her husband, but she was incredibly repulsed by him. So she told him she didn't want him touching her and she didn't want to touch him and she didn't want to sleep in the same bed. 
and she was very vocal with her resistance. Alan told Elisa one night that this was his right and her duty, and he raped her. And the worst part for Elisa was she didn't know what was happening to her. She says these things that hurt and were scary and terrifying were happening to her, and she didn't know what was going on. And she didn't know the words like rape and violated, and it wasn't even a part of her vocabulary within the FLDS. So Elisa cried, and she asked Alan to please stop. And when it was over, Alan rolled over and fell asleep, and Elisa went to the bathroom, and she cried and cried. And she sat in the bathroom trying to figure out and trying to find God's will in all of it because it didn't feel godly. Elisa went to see Warren and she told him what was happening in the bedroom. And she believed that if Warren realized what was going on, that he would validate that what was happening to her wasn't supposed to happen. But of course, Warren didn't do that. Warren told Elisa that she needed to go home and submit herself, mind, body, and soul to her husband, that her husband was her pathway to heaven, and Elisa felt betrayed. I can't even imagine feeling betrayed. I mean, this prophet is supposedly God on earth, the only person who has a direct connection to God, and you feel violated and you go to them for validation, for support, for help, and they tell you you need to submit yourself to your husband. I mean, that's just unbelievable. And to take something so pure like the concept of God and use it in this evil way to manipulate and control, I mean, that is just horrible. That This is beyond disturbing. Ruby talks about her experience. She says they had to consummate the marriage and she and Haven, her cousin that she had to marry, on their wedding night and she didn't want to. And she told him that she didn't want to and it was a rough night. She doesn't remember how, but she got her brother's number eventually. He had left the church and she called him and she told him she was married and she wanted him to come get her and he did. And she moved in with her brother's family. Elisa says there was uproar and gossip about why Ruby had left and about what had happened. Because she left, there was fear and concern that Ruby would tell the authorities that she was a child bride forced into a marriage at a young age. Joe, Ruby's crush, was in Salt Lake working at the time, so he didn't hear the rumors from Short Creek about Ruby leaving. Warren called Joe out of the blue, and he asked him how quickly he could get back to Short Creek. He told Joe he had a special mission for him. He needed Joe to go find Ruby and bring her back, whatever it takes. Joe says they were scared shitless. Ruby was going to narc on them to authorities. Joe saw an urgency in Warren he had never seen before because Ruby was barely 15 at the time. Ruby says one day her brother and his wife were going down to a lake to swim and they invited Ruby and she agreed. And on top of the cliff, she saw a guy standing there who looked familiar and she realized it was Joe. Joe found her at the lake and Ruby told him that she never wanted to go back again. Joe told Warren Ruby wasn't coming back and he told Joe to tell Ruby that if she returns, she could marry Joe. Joe was thinking he would finally marry Ruby possibly, but most likely that Warren was a lying SOB who would never allow Joe and Ruby to get married. Ruby considered it uh, and how she would be allowed to marry Joe, so she agreed and she went back with Joe and when she got back, she didn't see Joe for a long time after that. 
Joe says he knew in his gut he was sick to his stomach and he knew it was wrong to bring Ruby back. And he says he knows he betrayed Ruby and he will never forgive himself. Ruby says after Joe took her back, Joe was kicked out of the community. He was told never to return and Ruby was told she needed to go to her priesthood head to submit herself to the Lord, to the will of the Lord. And she did. Ruby had six kids by the time she was 24 years old and none of her kids were her choice, but she loves all of her kids. Ruby thinks she is still hurt and angry at her mom. Ruby asks how her mom could let her 14-year-old girl get married. Ruby has teenagers of her own, and she can't imagine letting them get married at 14. It was a human rights crisis, and law enforcement wasn't doing anything. The politicians weren't doing anything. So it got to the point where Mike Watkiss decided that they would find the victims and document the crimes. And they show a younger Mike interviewing a 16-year-old girl who got married and had a child as a minor. And he told this girl it's a crime under Arizona law and against the law to get married and have a child at that age. And he asks this girl if she knew it was against the law. And when she got married and got pregnant, she didn't know it was against the law, but she knows now. She was given to a 32-year-old police officer. She was 16. And that case got highly publicized in the news and they took the polygamist police officer to court and he was found guilty. And he just got a slap on the wrist, but the guilty verdict was important because Warren Jeffs realized if they can go after a cop and get a conviction for an underage marriage, he knew it was only a matter of time before they go after him. They show the Arizona Attorney General saying in a press conference that they will go after the criminals and child abusers. And it sent Warren Jeffs on the run. He knew he was in trouble because the heat was rising in Arizona and the heat was rising in Utah. And Warren knew he needed a safe place to go. Warren went down to Texas and he bought a bunch of land to hide from the outside world. But in hindsight, running to Texas was Warren's worst career move of all time. I literally feel suffocated watching this because imagine being stuck in an echo chamber in a cult, being raised in it, manipulated, abused, and controlled, and then told you have to do this or you go to hell and that the outside world is evil. This is the best you get on earth. And then you decide you can't take it. You are suffocated and you are so sick of it that you decide to go live in the evil in the outside world, only to find nothing is like what you were told. Nothing is like what you were taught your whole life. The whole world that you grew up in is a lie, having no knowledge or skills of real life and or of the world, and then having to learn yourself and life and the world as an adult while coping with being alone and lonely and coping with all the trauma of all the abuse and manipulation and indoctrination. Just watching, I feel like I can't breathe. So imagine how these men and women felt being raised in that and being trapped in that. That does it for the second episode of Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. To my YouTube viewers, please like, subscribe, and let me know your thoughts in the comments section. Next week, I'll be back for the next episode of my Sister Wives Rewatch, Season 2, Episode 11, Sister Wives in the City of Sin, and for the next episode of Seeking Sister Wife, and hopefully... My next episode of Book Club on Chapter 6, Janelle. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you soon.
Bye.